Hey folks, Mike here. During the discussion that follows, I forgot one of the questions I wanted to ask Mike LeCicero. In his book, he quotes from the unit history of the Border Regiment that they recorded the December 2nd, 1917 operation in the barest of terms, rendering it as a, quote, now forgotten feat of arms, end quote. Following our talk and after we had stopped recording, I realized that I had completely skipped over the question in my list. I had wanted to use the question as an opportunity to thank him for writing the book and for commemorating the men who had taken part in that nighttime operation on that cold, moonlit December night in Flanders in 1917. The phrase, now forgotten feat of arms, reminded me once again of something that has tugged at the back of my brain for some time now. It has to do with my father. My father was a Portuguese immigrant to the United States, and he worked in the leather factories north of Boston in the 1960s, 70s, and well into the 80s. There, he made lifelong friendships, and I know there must have been a swirling camaraderie amongst him and his mates that must have included ongoing inside jokes, the guys making fun of each other, griping about work, and the like. I know for sure there was ample tasting of wine in the cellar when those guys came over, because I remember that. None of that was recorded, though, and now that my father and all his friends have gone west, the world they lived in is gone. Even though I was in my 30s, I was too young, in a sense, to capture most of his life before he left us. So phrases like now forgotten feet of arms really get to me. To think of so many actions on the Western Front, the other fronts, and during the entire war in general that have gone unrecorded and are now lost to the past really brings into focus my appreciation for what Mike has done with his magnificent book. With this work, he keeps alive the memory of the men mentioned in the book, as well as those unmentioned who were in the ranks of the battalions that fought that December night. It's really a fantastic book. So, let's go ahead, let's get to the show now. Okay. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. Uh, with me today is Dr. Michael LeCicero, here to discuss his, frankly, magnificent book, uh, A Moonlight Massacre, The Night Operation on the Passchendaele Ridge, 2nd December, 1917. We'll talk more about the book in a few moments. I'd like to begin with an introduction of Dr. LeCicero himself. So, Dr. LeCicero, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, just call me Mike, please. You got it. Thank you. Um, Mike, um, so first, first question is um, just to get to know you and, and so our audience can get to know you is so, and I find this whole story fascinating here, but you are an American expat living in the UK, writing about a, you know, little known action at the end of the Anglo-German Third Battle of Ypres in uh, World War I. What what has been the journey that has uh, that has brought you down this this road to, to writing this book? 
Well, I'd always been interested in the First World War as a child. And then when I went to university as an undergrad, it was rekindled by a lecture that I had and, and really became something of an obsession. And uh, to the point where uh, I would, whenever chance I could get, take a trip to Western Europe and obviously go to, you know, to the Somme and, and the Ypres sectors. I was, I was primarily interested in the British and the British Empire, Britain and the British Empire's involvement in the First okay. World War. And with this particular operation in December 1917, which is, you know, a forgotten tailpiece of the Third Battle of Ypres, I was in a secondhand bookshop in Ypres uh, one summer day and uh, doing a shelf browse. And I saw a dog-eared copy of a book on the British 8th Division. It was published in 1926. The authors are Boriston and Bax. And I okay. pulled it off the shelf and opened it up randomly. And there was a map. And it said, Passchendaele, 1st and 2nd December 1917. And knowing that the campaign, at least the last attack of the campaign, was 10th of November 1917, I was puzzled. I said, well, what's this? And so the next day, I went out to the area of at least generally where I knew the attack was launched. Mm -hmm. It's a place, uh, it was an intersection called Vindictive Crossroads. It's now Vindictive Traffic Circle or Roundabout, as they would call them in Britain. Uh, and I remember looking east and thinking, oh, I know something out there happened. Uh, but, you know, I didn't have the map with me. I didn't have a copy of it. But, you know, and it remained in the back of my mind. And it's, I, when I decided to pursue a master's and also subsequent to that, a PhD, uh, this seemed to be an area of First World War military history that was in need of a study. And so I took it upon myself to do so. Awesome. Awesome. Super cool. Um, all right. And so and, and now what started your um, your interest in just in the in the Great War in general? Like I know it started at a pretty young age, correct? Well, actually, I, you know, and I can answer that question for you uh, rather easily. Uh, I, um, I was at the time I was a child. We were living in this small town in Pennsylvania called Academy. Okay. And the school that I went to, which is now the town hall, uh, there was a bronze statue in front of it of a doughboy. And it was one of those um, mass produced statues at a lot of communities on both sides of the pond in France. But uh, um, that they purchased to commemorate their veterans and their war dead. And it was uh, this doughboy holding the Springfield rifle and holding a victory laurel aloft that you've probably seen it in, yep. you know, the Brody helmet and whatever. And I, and I, I remember being, I was so like, I'm a, a seven or eight and just gazing at this. I was fascinated by it. And I'd say that that was probably where I actually became aware of the great war. And, you know, if you've ever seen it, you might be too young for this, but there was a popular book with children, a series called the how and why books. And they had the how and why book of world war one. And that was another book that you know at the time and then you know i, I got interested in other things history related but within as i mentioned earlier returning to university i became seriously interested in the war again and i became a bit of an anglophile after reading martin middlebrook's classic uh the first day on the song mm -hmm. which was published i believe in 1971 wow fascinating that's so cool that's so cool 
Um, okay, so let's talk about the book. So I'm, I'm going to discuss the, the the book here. So um, I'm just going to hold it up. So the the book is again, it's a a, a Moonlight Massacre, um, and I've just so first of all, it's it's an excellent book. Like just um, both for the content, which we'll we'll get to, but even just for the physical aspects, like. Folks, uh, for you folks watching the, the Zoom talk, so the book is a, it's about an inch thick, but it is physically heavy. And I think that speaks to like the, the amount of information in here. This book has been very deeply researched. Um, uh, Mike here has definitely done all of the homework uh, in, in accomplishing and, and writing this book, which, which um, you told me before the, the call started here was... Um, it was about an 11 year process for you, correct? It, it was 11 years from uh, the commencement of the research to the publication. And in that time, I earned a master's in the US and then the PhD at the University of Birmingham. That's uh, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it was certainly like the learning curve for me. I mean, uh, with all the revisions and whatever else, I, I think it's something I can produce much quicker now. But back then, <laughs> you know, uh, um, all kinds of you know, discovering um, archival material or publications, especially when I came to Britain, that I wouldn't have had access to in right. the United States. And uh, as early as 2003, I took a I took a, a research trip. It was the first time to go to Ypres and walk the ground, and you know, uh, and and then I went back any number of times. So it was a you know, I really it was something that I immersed myself in. You know, oh, that's a, that's amazing. So the book covers you know you 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 know. For listeners out there, you you get every level. You you get the the Tommy on the ground, um, even the the German. Um, um, I think of them as as the term they use the the front kämpfer. You get their point of view. You get the 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 colonels. You get the generals' view. You get the corps and army level view as well. So every every level is is um, in this book. It's it's again deeply deeply researched. There are maps maps that that you can frequently refer to that makes sense. So um, the, the maps are amazing. There's even color plates on, on what um, a Tommy and a, and a German soldier would have looked like in late 1917. So it's fantastic. And another point with the photographs in the book is when you mention someone, um, you know, a particular officer comes up in the text, his photograph, if there is a photograph of them, it's going to be right around, probably the very page that he's that he's being mentioned on so that's that's been fantastic and um i have to say this book um also uh increased my vocabulary by by four words and um <laughs> so which i wield um coppice uh boskage and um argus which i had you know i had never heard those words before um so and going into argus just a little deeper um it's also uh, uh, deepened my knowledge of Greek mythology because I now know what what an Argus uh, was. So, <laughs> so like, it's just I, I can't say enough about how how. Oh, what thank you. Need Appreciate that. Was. Thank you very much. Um, so to talk about the book, um, so so I think you, you've alluded to it already a little uh, a little bit with finding that book in the Ypres bookshop, but. Um, so like getting, getting into, um, Moonlight Massacre, like, can you, is there anything else you can share with the, share with us about like how, like what inspired you to, to go deep into, into this particular well, operation? 
in respect to something you said earlier, you mentioned about the maps, and that's an interesting story. One of the top military cartographers in the United Kingdom is Barbara Taylor. Her name's Barbara Taylor, and, and she does a number of books for us. Okay. Um, and uh, she was the cartographer. And the problem that I had when I did my thesis, for instance, was the maps that were available. And I mentioned that one that was in the, uh, the 8th Division history. But any of the maps I had came from the official documents the, uh, in the National Archives, you know, the PNA, the War Office series. And the problem was, is that this particular attack was launched on the boundary of two corps right. and uh, on the boundary of two divisions of those separate corps. And so if you looked at the map for the division on the right, it would only cover that particular area, whereas you know, and the same with the division on the left. And they had to be brought together. So, so having Barbara compile you know, those maps, I mean, it, it even took I – live, I live in the Midlands in Britain, and I took a trip down south to Reading, okay, mm-hmm. which is past London. And we had to like, meet face-to-face and go over some things. But I think she did a fantastic job. And as far as I know – you know, for this particular operation, it's the first time that the, that the details of, of the maps that were available have been brought together, you know, in a series of maps. And, 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 and you know, certainly, you know, thank you for your comments about the maps, but it certainly was by design, because if you're going to write about something like this, as complex as it is, you need to have good maps. I'm sure any of your listeners have experiences where you have a, 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 a book that you're reading. And, and, and the maps are either non-existent or are not up to standard. And it's frustrating because, you know, you're trying to understand what happened on the ground and you can't because the maps are, you know, are, are really, you know, of not much use. Right, right. So we wanted to have, you know, really, and I remember my publisher, when, when he approached me about publishing with him, he said to me, what made me decide, he said, your book is in, in need of good maps and we will, you know, they finance the maps. Uh, I know I have colleagues who have been told basically, well, you want maps, you know, carry on with that. But the publisher is not going to be involved. And so I had some, some real support at the production end of the volume. And, and I got the book. Essentially, I got the book that I wanted. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. That's awesome. It's awesome. Um, all right. So we're getting into this operation. So this was an operation that, that you know, uh, took place in early December of 1917. Um, so longtime listeners um, of the podcast, probably already World War I enthusiasts, but um, if you can, Mike, put us in that, that Ypres salient, maybe even more specifically in the, in the Passchendaele salient, uh, in November 1917. Um, so real, what was the, the purpose of the, of the 2nd of December attack and, and what were its objectives? Well, the second December attack is a result of the final phase of Third Eve and things that need to be done operationally to improve the position had been captured. And although Third Eve is often portrayed as uh, you know a disaster for the British, uh, it's often forgotten that the German army was there. German army received a real hammering at 30. They did. Uh, and also one of the, you know, the offensive had a very, was very broad in scope when it opened on the 31st of July. You, know, you had the previous offensive at Messine when they captured the lower portion of the ridge or, you know, most of it. And now the Northern operation was to capture the central part of the ridge 
in the northern part. Why is the Passion Dale Bridge important? Because once you capture that high ground, you dominate the Bruges Basin. Yep. Downhill into low ground. Okay. The German army has to defend it because of these key railway hubs, Rousselaar and Tarot. And, and, and Rousselaar, for instance, uh, going a little ahead of myself, but in the moonlight, man. If you go to the battlefield today, the Southern Doubt, you can see into the endurance of Rousselaar and all the building villages and whatever in between that. Um, so the offensive, you know, the grand, the strategic scope of it was to clear the Germans out of Belgium. And it was understood. This happened in 1918. When Rousselaar and Taru fell, the Germans had to abandon Belgium. So, you know, it makes strategic sense. It's whether or not, you know, uh, uh, the British and the French, who they had an the French had an army attacking to the left of the British, were, you know, had the capability of doing so. And they were also quite unlucky. And, you know, in, in just covering this now is to understand that what happened in, uh, um, when the offensive opened on the 31st of July, was it Napoleon that said that uh, one of the, one of the uh, key things that a general had to, ha had to have was luck? And Haig and the British Army were not lucky in 1917. They had aberrational rainfall. Right. Uh, throughout August and into early September that didn't clear up until mid-September. And so the offensive itself, you know, you have you're attacking in this in, in this low lying ground that's intersected by streams that drain the higher ground. Okay, it's essentially you would you, you capture a ridge, you advance into a valley where there'll be, you know, uh, uh, you, they were called beaks. They were usually like these man-made streams. They're not very big if you go there. You can usually jump over them. Really, you, you have a you have a clay sub base. Mm -hmm. have these tremendous artillery barrage, firing millions of shells to get through the German defenses. And with this heavy rainfall, it becomes in places a, a literal swamp. And it, it was an aberrational rainfall. Um, Haig's chief of intelligence up until early 1918, uh, Brigadier General Charters, interestingly enough, says in his memoirs that it rained in Flanders like this steadily like 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 in a monsoon this is how he described it every year that's nonsense wow. you just have to look at the rainfall for yeah. 1914 15 16 nothing like that it was just very very unlucky and uh and the off and the offensive stalled okay and it wasn't until uh they, they i'll talk about this i'm sure later um, later on but it wasn't until the offensive stalled and there was a change in command a uh, 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 focus of, of the army that was the spearhead of the offensive that things changed uh but of course the weather also cleared up too but you know ultimately you know let's say that uh the british would have captured those rail hubs there was going to be a landing on the flanders core coast farther to the west correct and uh you know and the hope was to drive the germans out of belgium and one other thing to keep in mind is is that as the campaign progressed uh, in the second phase, the successful phase between the 20th of September and the 4th of October, the Germans are on the ropes. They're desperate. They're actually considering withdrawing from the ridge into that low ground just to get away from the British guns. Wow. And so, you know, to, 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 um, uh, it, it's, it's not just this, you know, futile is a word that I hate when we talk about the Great War. I think it does a disservice to the men. 
that fought, they didn't think it was futile. Okay, I mean, certainly, I guess my point is not everybody was a sensitive war poet in the First World War. Okay, right, and, uh, and it's not to make light of 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 the of of of, of, the, of the, the human suffering and the cost. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, but yep. to just dismiss it as a waste. Uh, it contributed to the defeat of Germany. There's no question about it. I mean, if you're looking at it from an Allied perspective, from a British perspective, it contributed to their defeat. Certainly, you know, Ludendorff and Hindenburg after the Somme, after the offenses in 1917, Arras and Chemin des Dunes and, you know, and Flanders and Combrack, they don't want to go through another year like that again. And they make that fateful decision for 1918. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to talk about the, the Ypres salient, um, I'll have to find it and I'll uh, try to remember to post it up on social media. But I think one of the, one of the famous photos is of a, uh, uh, I believe the New Zealanders, the machine gun crew in the Ypres salient where like they're basically just in a sea of, of water. I, I know the picture you're talking about. And the, Canadian, the, he's looking Canadian. back. They're yes. Canadians? And, okay. And actually, that's the, that photo is very interesting because that's, that's the sector and that is the period just before the 8th Corps takes over from the Canadians. And of course, oh. the 8th Corps, its 8th Division, launches the attack on the right of that 2nd December attack. Yes, oh. that's a very famous photo. And those are the conditions that prevail. You know, there were American doctors that were attached to British battalions and in a neighboring division. It was the 49th okay. uh, West Riding Division. They were next to the 8th, um, at least that early in that early period. They had a doctor attached to them who couldn't believe that men could live in conditions like that. Because, And we're going a little ahead of ourselves in a sense that I talked about the operation. But if we're talking about setting the stage for the, for the 2nd of December, yep. and this, and what we're talking about is, is that there are three offensives that are launched. Um, what happens is with, with those aberrational rain and uh, uh, what could be argued a somewhat flawed uh, command style of the British Fifth Army under uh, General Hubert Goff, mm-hmm. he turns over the main part of the offensive to Herbert Plumer, Daddy Plumer, but the commander oh. of the British Second Army. And uh, he knew the salient like the back of his hand. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and he plans a series of offenses, his army, with the Fifth Army much reduced now, but attacking on his left. Mm-hmm. But uh, a series of operations between the 20th of September and the 4th of October, where the Germans are hammered, seriously hammered. And the weather had cleared up by then. In the attack on uh, 20th September, I'm not saying that things weren't still damp from the rainfall, but dust was seen. Wow. In okay. The Australian sector coming up from, so it's not this, okay. And what was going on was, is that uh, the British were launching what they would call bite and hold attacks. Yep. And early on with Goff, they were advancing to gain as much ground as Papa's, they were trying to do on the opening day of the battle. And they did achieve a lot uh, of, of, of their objectives. However, the Germans, before evening, launched these counterattacks. They massed behind the Passchendaele Ridge. And that was their tactic, is that the Germans had a series of zones that they defended. You know, uh, um, one of them, the front one, was a sacrifice zone. They knew they were going to lose that. But they would draw the British in to these series of zones. You had 
you know, defensive positions, pillboxes, you know, mutually supporting each other across fire and whatever else. But they would break up the British attackers. And then they would have what they call Eingreif divisions. Wow. That were in the rear. Yep. And they would launch counterattacks if needed. If 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 the attacks, the British attacks were, were halted, well then the Eingreif divisions weren't deployed. But they had these counterattack divisions. And by that time, the British attacks, you know, they they'd sustain casualties, they'd be somewhat disorganized, they obviously they'd be weaker. Okay. Right. And so in, on the 31st of July, some of the divisions, uh, some of the battalions of, 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 the, of the attacking divisions, especially in the center, uh, uh, some of the, of the units that went farther for companies and platoons, they vanished without a trace in the German counterattacks. There's, a, there's an account in the British official history, which was published in 48, of masses of German divisions. They see them coming over the Passchendaele Ridge. Okay. And uh, this is like during the rainfall. But, you know, and some of the some of the advanced units were never heard from again. Wow. So what what Plumer does is differently is that it's recognized during these attacks in August and into early September. But it's recognized that one of the problems is, is that the British, in their efforts to gain as much ground as possible so they can achieve their strategic designs, is that they're, they're, they're advancing from the protection of their guns. Right. Okay. Fatal. Fatal okay. yep. And it makes the infantry that's advanced ahead any other unit makes them vulnerable to German counterattacks. So what Plumer introduces with his second army and his chief of staff, um, uh, um, Major General Harrington, uh, is that uh, uh, a limited advance only as far as the guns can take you. Consolidation, and then when the German counterattack divisions come in, you break them up with the defensive artillery fire. And so when I said to you that the Germans were on the ropes, okay, it's these three attacks, in particular one on the 4th of October, where the uh, Germans are desperate. And what saves them? Well, Crown Prince Ruprecht, who commanded Bavarian Crown Prince, who commanded the group of German armies primarily opposite the British, mm -hmm. okay, uh, in his diary, he writes, uh, uh, it's after, well, it was on the 4th of October attack. He said, the weather has broken our greatest alley. And of course, what happens then is, is that Haig decides that they have to continue the battle despite the weather. And the reason is, is that they want to get onto the ridge so they can winter on the ridge and continue the offensive in the spring. They, they've already given up the grand strategic design that was given up uh, in October. Yeah, it was given up. You know, the, the amphibious landing, they knew they weren't going to get there but, you know, for 1918. No, we know now that that was never going to happen. Okay. Right. But, but, you know, at the time, that's, this was the thinking. Okay. Yep. They want to get up onto the ridge so that they continue these attacks and their disasters. There's, there's the Battle of Polka and yep. there's, and, 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 and then there's the, um, uh, the first Battle of Passchendaele. And then they bring in the Canadian Corps. And as I mentioned earlier about the campaign is, it's a, it's a campaign of diminishing returns. And so right. what, what essentially is happening is, you know, the British are advancing on a narrow front and, 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 and they have to because they're focusing on the ridge. Uh, in some places like opposite Buckapel, you can't even get to the ridge because it's a literal swamp. It's impossible to advance there. They find this out in these, in these October attacks. 
And so there's no more attacks being launched. You're launching on the ground where there's a good footing. So by the close of the campaign, okay, the the British and the Canadians have been advanced into a salient around the battle around Passchendaele Ridge. And, and, And then the attack is shut down on the 20th of November. That's the opening day of the Battle of Cambrai. And the Battle of Cambrai is, you know, where tanks were first used on Moss and right. the, the predicted artillery barrage, and they break the Hindenburg line. Okay, but still, Haig still has his eye on Flanders. And so what's happened is, is that these Anglo-Canadian attacks in October and in November have driven this salient around the village. And uh, um, the Canadian Corps is relieved. They were promised that once they gained Passchendaele and its environs, that they would be gone. And so a British Corps takes over on the, on the right, the 8th Corps. The 2nd British Corps is holding on the left. And what do they find out is that they have no good observation points in the apex of the salient. So where they can dominate, where they can see into the German lines. And so where that is, you're looking to the, to the northeast of Passchendaele Village. Okay. And you can't see into those, you can't see towards Roselar. You can't see that low ground that the Germans are now holding because they're holding it. They're holding very edge defenses there. And then to the northwest, there is an outcrop of um, land, uh, 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 like a, a ridge, a small ridge that comes out of the main Passchendaele Ridge called the Vat Cottages Ridge. And that dominates the German, the low ground facing Plakabal for the northwest. It's difficult to visualize. but And, and then most importantly, there is this hill that isn't really much of a hill until you stand on it and you look back west. It was called Hill 52. And Hill 52 dominated everything in that area. And the Germans still held that. And what's unusual is, and it was one of the things that you know I discovered in my book, if you read the British official history of the campaign, and if you read the Canadian official history of the campaign, and any number of books published you know, in the interwar period, if they even talk about this particular topic in this phase of the battle of this campaign, mm-hmm. they say that Hill 52 was captured by the Canadians on the 10th of November. That was the date of the last official attack. Okay. The first Canadian division attacking on the right, and then the boundary to the British Second Second Corps, the first British division attacking on the left. First British division fails to capture the Back Cottages Ridge, but the Canadians captured Hill 52 only. I couldn't figure out when I began research for this particular operation why it was in German hands then. Why was it an objective on the 2nd of December? Oh, right. Maybe the Germans captured it in a repost sometime between uh, the 10th of November and the 2nd of December. But that wasn't the case also. And I got lucky. I was looking at an intelligence file at the British National Archives. And it essentially told me everything I need to know in one paragraph. And the gist of it was that the Canadians had captured the south, the southern slope of Hill 50. But what they needed to have was the summit, okay, right, and the northern slope, and they didn't have it in their hand. So when the British Eighth Corps took over the line from the Canadians, their chief of staff, his name was Cecil Faber Aspinall. He wrote the, the official histories of Gallipoli because he was on Ian Hamilton's staff. Well, he was now a lieutenant general. I'm sorry, he was now a brigadier general. And he was on, he was the uh, um, chief of staff of the Corps commander, and he surveyed the area. And he said, we have no good observation posts here, you know, and we have two choices. You know, uh, we're in a salient, 
you know, different the Germans are on three sides of us, but they can also fire from the rear, from the whole two forest area, which yes. which which, which if you're familiar with maps of the Ypsilon, the whole two forest is, you know, they only ever got to the fringe of it during the plant during the 1917 offensive. But the Germans are still there and, and they can fire into the rear of the path of this passion of the Ypsilon. Okay. Just to clarify, the the Hotuld Forest that's that's to the north of Passchendaele. It's to the north. That's okay. yep. the north of the behind. Yeah, yeah, yep. in the lines, yes. just barely getting in. Yep. And so Aspinall says, "Well, you know, we can try and improve our position in the Syrian, but the wastage is going to be high. We can't mass a lot of guns there because it's so narrow." Yep. Okay. And even to attack, like for instance, to attack to the north to capture the back cottages ridge, guns can't fire there weren't enough guns to fire kind of creeping barrage that they would use okay because they were the, the infantry would have to attack from the position from south to north but the guns would have to fire from west to east and british gunners at this time were not able to do that by 1918 they could do something like that so they had to rely i'm going a little ahead of myself but they, but it shows you the problems that they encountered right they had to fire a concentration barrage okay so what does aspinall what are his conclusions in this report that he wrote in November 1917? It's, well, you know, we can attack, but there are these problems, okay, that we're going to encounter, like the narrow front, the problem with the guns, or we can fall back to a defensible line. And his recommendation to doing that is to giving up almost all the ground that was taken since the offensive opened on the 31st of July, which was not going to happen. Right. You know, by this time, British GHQ, Hague, uh, um, and, and his staff, they were under the gun from uh, Lloyd George, David Lloyd George. And uh, to have abandoned all that ground with all that expenditure of lives and treasure, it was just not going to happen. And so the decision was made that they would launch a series of attacks um, to try and regain, to start anyway, these observation points that they needed. He'll, well, uh, um, in the 8th Division sector, there, were, uh, there was a German defensive position called Venison Trench. It's a linear trench with two strong points at the end of it, the Southern Redoubt and the Northern Redoubt. Which you, you noted was, um, was a, wasn't really in keeping with, with German doctrine at that point. but like, not, at that, not at that time. And before, I, uh, before we go to the other objective, I'll, I'll mention that. Yeah, at this time, uh, the battlefield, I'm sure many of, many of your listeners have seen the photos, the aerial photos, where there's just shell hole. It looks like the surface of the moon. Yeah. The, the millions of shells, bombardments, and many of them are filled with water because just being a little bit above sea level. But it looks like the surface of the moon. And <coughs> it's very good for the Germans, you know, in, 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 in a sense as defenders, to have this the ground in this way because if, you know, they have linear defenses, but they can't be observed from the air or from the ground because they're able to, you know, situate them in, in, in hundreds and thousands of shell holes. And uh, the, the, what the Germans called it was the near the Gefixfelder, if I'm pronouncing that right, the hidden battlefield. Yep. And so it was odd that they would hold this redoubt, these two redoubts and this linear trench in between. You could discern these from the air. You know, but, uh, there's some aerial photographs reproduced in the book. <clears throat> and why would they do that? Well, once again, it was going to actually studying the ground and going there. I was in I was in a car 
and I was driving down the Don Korostra, which runs between the southern edge of where Venison Trench was okay. and the site of where the Southern Redoubt was. And I just went over a little bit of a rise, and I looked east, and I could see the whole hinterland below. The ground slopes down, and it's why the Germans chose to hold on to these positions, even though they were visible, you know, you know, primarily from the air and the gunners and things like that. Right. Because to give them up <coughs> would expose these villages, uh, these building villages, and the outskirts of Rusalar and make them very popular. That defend their position, uh, um, and, and, and the same applies to the uh, objective on on the uh, on the left for, for the for the second corps, uh, Hill Fifty Two. Hill Fifty Two dominated the area. The attacking division, if they went to capture Hill Fifty Two, would have to attack. Couldn't attack in the daytime. The Germans could see everything. Right. And, and then, uh, extending from Hill Fifty Two is the back Cottages Ridge. And uh, uh, if you stand, for instance, on the western tip of the Vat Cottages Ridge, as I said, you can see all of this low ground in front of West Rosabeek, which is a virtual swamp. It's impassable. Okay, there's a photo in the book that shows dead Tommies from the air. You can see them laying about. Yeah. That was taken in that second. And there were a number of divisions that attempted that in, uh, well, primarily in October 1970, and it was just absolutely impossible. But they could see everything that the Germans were doing down below. You stand there now, and you you know you can see the farms. A lot of the farms are in the approximate positions where they were before the war. Okay, and it's very easy if you go to see the sites. And there are some photos in the book of the battle today. But you really you get a grasp of you know what the tactical problem was. And to the Germans, you know this was vital ground. One of their divisional generals he said, you know you know not step back and you know this. You know, this, you know, you know, we're not falling back anymore. The British have taken so much of this ridge. We're not, you know, we're going to resist as long as possible and hold this. So they were determined to defend these positions. But, you know, essentially, uh, so in, in talking about what happened on the 2nd of December, uh, why the attack was launched, it was to improve these, these, uh, um, uh, to gain these observation points for future attacks. However, it was determined just before the attack, that they weren't going to do this. They weren't going to launch a series of operations in the winter to take bites out of the remainder of the ridge and eventually dominate what was Throzebika, which is the town at the very northern tip of the Passchendaele Ridge. Uh, it was going to, it, the 2nd December operation was um, relegated to what they would call uh, a local attack. And they were just going to try and improve the position and uh, and then, you know, maybe in the spring, you know, uh, if, if they were able to continue the Flanders offensive, you know, they would try and improve the positions that they already had. I think Rawlinson, he never explains why, but I think West Rosabeek was just considered to be too much, tough of a nut to crack. You know, it was a veritable fortress by that time. And I just don't think they would rather dominate it from higher ground, by, at least initially with, you know, these these attacks that never came off where they were going to try and bite the remainder of the ridge. So second December operation, once finally launched, is really just to improve observation. Wow. You know, in the winter. So uh, essentially, like um, uh, like you were saying, a, a local operation, but still sizable because it, it's going to involve two, two um, infantry divisions, or elements of them anyways. Um, Which doesn't seem like much, but, you know, once again, 
30 being a battle of ever diminishing returns. In the book, I look at the last attacks and, 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 and they get, you know, if the front's narrower, they get, they get the troops involved, you know, or there's less troops involved each attack right. much. And so uh, uh, by the standards of the latter half of the campaign, even though it's just two divisions that are involved and really uh, with one division, it's one brigade. And on the left, it's a reinforced brigade. So not, not the entire division is actually involved, but they're on standby. So you've deployed two divisions. And by the standards of this closing period of the campaign, it's a big attack. Right. In my opinion. Right. So Mike, j- just to um, back up a bit, like um, October, 1917, specifically the 4th of October. So what, what happened on that day that so affected the, the German um, fourth army that, that was defending, you know, defending against the, the BEF. Um, and so what, what happened that, that's so, I, I would guess that so hammered the Germans that day. And then how did German adaptations to those attacks um, go on to affect the, the second December uh, operation? Yeah. And, and, and there was a direct connection to the question. Well, the 4th of October attack, known as the Battle of Brudzein, it was one of the okay. three plumer drives, of which, of course, Fifth Army was still involved with, okay? But you remember that I said that, you know, uh, uh, the British infantry would only advance as far as the range of its guns Correct. and then break up the German counterattack divisions. Well, what had happened, the first one was on the 20th of September, the Battle of the Menin Road Ridge, and what happened on the 26th of September, the Battle of Polygon Wood, okay? And then Brudzeinda, which was a, a major success, uh, uh, for the British, but you have to understand what happened in the first two attacks. What happened in the first two attacks is that the German counterattack divisions got broken up. They suffered severe capture. They were too far back. So what, what to do? And it was actually a German OHL decision, Supreme Command decision that came up with this, okay? And, you know, and German First Fourth Army carried it off. Well, if, if, our, if our reserves, our counterattack divisions are too far back, then we got to bring them up closer to the front, which they did. And of course, what ended up happening was, is it as far as to the front line, the outposts, okay? You know, uh, German, inf- German, German troops crowded into the zones, okay? Or closer to the zones. And that made them vulnerable to British bombardment prior to the attack. Correct. And Brudzinda is a great success uh, um, by the standards of Third Eagle. And it is where the Germans really become concerned and they're contemplating abandoning their positions on the ridge and falling back into that low ground to get away, to disengage from the British guns, make them redeploy them. And that's problematic because behind you, you know, you have a battlefield that's in state, you know, from all the shelling, you have to rely. And, 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 and on 4th of October, the weather breaks. Okay. Uh, I mentioned earlier about Ruprecht, uh, you know, uh, our greatest ally, the weather broke. So uh, the British are, you know, at least trying to, as I said earlier, to try to capture the ridge but before shutting the campaign down. But now time is against them. And so the subsequent attacks, which I mentioned earlier, uh, the Germans learned their lesson from Brunsanta. And so what they've done is, is they've redistributed their forces. They're taking advantage of that delayed the fixed spell the deployment, okay? Mm-hmm. But uh, um, uh, more machine guns, 
uh, um, thinning out the defenses. Uh, uh, it, 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 it's the response, and the British have a hard time tackling these defensive systems. However, uh, a colleague of mine has written recently, it's just something to consider. And according to him, the, the German defense in depth post, um, well, yeah, post Brutzeinde was never really tested because the weather limited what the British were able to do. Ah, and so, okay. you know, it, 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 it depends. You know, another colleague of mine looks at 30, especially at this period, as a logistical engineering effort. That's, how, that's what he calls it, where engineering is more important, okay, and that the British didn't have enough Royal Engineer units or labor units, you know, to do what needed to be done to get, you know, uh, uh, supplies to front shells and, you know, uh, reserves, you know, um, it, for the Moonlight Map, for the Moonlight Massacre attack, uh, the, the battalions that were not in the line, this is in the winter, okay, and, and, and it's quite cold, but it took them half a day to get to the front line prior to the attack. I mean, you know, the conditions are very bad because you have to rely on, you know, available roads, corduroy roads or duckboard tracks. Uh, in the book, I talk about uh, track number eight that one of the battalions of, uh, of the 8th Division had to use. In the, in the war diary, they described their progress among them as heartbreaking. And they just barely got to where they needed to be in time. You know, wow. it, it, so the conditions are quite bad. At one point, General Rawlinson, who takes over from General Plumer in November 1917. They send Plumer to Italy after the Italian route of Caporetto. The government insisted upon the Lloyd George government insisted upon. And so Rawlinson is at the on the, is on the coast commanding, you know, the, what would be the Flanders Coast part of the of, of the 1917 Flanders campaign. Mm -hmm. That's in abeyance. So he's sent down south to take over the Second Army. And uh, at one point prior to the attack on the 2nd of December, he writes in his diary, he's done, the situation at Passchendaele is terrible, with dead bodies lying everywhere and no way to bury them. So it's a, it's a, you know, uh, uh, once again, I mean, I might be going ahead of myself, but it is a wonder when you consider the conditions that prevail at that moment, that that back in December launched at all. I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, it really is to me because right. of, of, of the difficulties that they encountered. I mean, it just, you know, uh, I, know I write about it in some detail, what the situation was like. And, and you really have to, the, the fact that any kind of, 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 of assault, of an organized assault was able to be launched, is, it, says, it says a lot about, you know, the men, you know, uh, and, and their commanders. Yeah, yeah. Which as, um, which as an aside, I, I want to say from, from earlier, Plumer is... Uh, He's he's pretty much like one one of my favorites. I, I I like the 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 him him taking care of his soldiers and then also his his bite and hold style. Um, I actually uh, in in my house here I'm 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 known as particularly slow and especially like trying to get out of the house. So what I what I tell uh, you know my family is and and they don't really care to hear it is like hey, hey guys look like I'm not Patton okay I'm Plumer. All right. Like I, <laughs> I go step by step. I go in my own time. You know, so. <laughs> well, you know it, it's, it's a very good analogy. Just as an aside, I, I, when we were talking before, the, before the, we started the podcast, I, yeah. I mentioned Rob Thompson. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, 
you know, a, a Plumer is certainly one of the best. Rob has some issues with him about the closing stages of 30 and those attacks at Walkapal and First Passchendaele. And it seems in, if anybody, if any of you may have, uh, if any of your listeners, um, Pryor and Wilson's book, which is, which is one of the best modern, it has, you know, some people have some issues, with it, but it's a pretty good um, uh, general history of the campaign, modern history. But uh, it, it seems that, you know, uh, in, in an attempt to keep the tempo of offensive operations going from Menon Road Ridge through Polygon Wood, through Broodsinda, in those attacks that were fiascos, I said, you know, Guacapo mm-hmm. and First Passchendaele, that uh, Plumer uh, did not adhere to his, me- to, to his normal methodology, ah. careful planning and whatever. And there seems to be a disconnect and not just at army level in those attacks, also at core level. So for instance, one of the villains of the um, second Anzac Corps attack mm-hmm. on the, uh, on the um, 12th of October for First Passchendaele is uh, um, Godly, Sir God, as he was known. Okay. But the core commander of the, of the second Anzac Corps, okay. just, you know, I mean, they could see where they were going to attack uh, on um, uh, the Bellevue Spur. The New Zealand Division observers could see that the wire hadn't been cut. Mm. Okay. And, of course, the New Zealanders were massacred on the day. They didn't know, yeah. they didn't, most of them didn't get beyond the wire. And so you do see, you know, when I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the ability to launch an attack, uh, you know, uh, it is in senses that that was what the purpose was, you know, and you're following orders. And this seems necessary and important, time, but there are flaws, right? You know, certainly, in, 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 you know, there are in, in, in the second of December attack, okay? you know, uh, uh, the, the major one has to do with uh, uh, the condition, atmospheric conditions, you know, what's happened on the ground or what's going on up in the sky, you know, we'll touch on that, I'm sure, but anyway, yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, so the conditions are terrible. You, you also mentioned in the book um, when you're talking about um, particularly using the, the photographs of some of the folks who, who some of the men who, who took part in the operation that um, particularly where they they were killed, that a fair number of them, you write that their 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 bodies were never recovered in the in that um and that sea of mud and that today they're yeah, uh, that's quite common even uh, uh, my, my belgian friends on their property which is near on the Messines ridge you know uh, i've been going there for many years and it's quite common like in the, you know digging around on the property like in, just he's a landscaper but you know in his garden finding uh, i was there last time and he had a femur that he found it's wow. very very common you find bits and you know and, and, and it goes on to this day wow. but yes you know i, I mean uh yeah, it's uh, 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 the the the, it, the scars remain. The you know it, 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 in in the area, uh, it's quite common to find artifacts from the war. And of course, ordnance. People are still killed and injured, you know, by unexploded ordnance. That's that's very very common. Yes, right. The area where where the where the Moonlight Omaha massacre operation place is an interesting place to visit if you know the ground, because. It's not visited very often. It's off the beaten path. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's it, it's an area where you know. I mean, I'm not saying no one goes there, but it's not like the Menin Road or Polygon Wood, you know, or Huga or places like that. 
Mm -hmm. it's, it's not that way. And so uh, there's a lot to see if you know the ground. Oh, excellent. Okay. Oh, good. Good. All right. So you, you, you've talked about it a bit already. Um, but if you can't like, just again, like just adding to, um, one of the questions I had here was, uh, about developments in both the, the BEF and the German army by late 1917, which you've already touched on. Um, so, I mean, by this point in the war, like 1917, you bring it up in your book, like, uh, a BEF, a, a Dominion, a Canadian, New Zealand division, in German divisions too. Like these are complex organizations. There, there, there's a there's a lot going on. You're talking about the the Germans with their concept of the the hidden battlefield, and then their their defense in depth with the um, the outpost zone that they they sacrifice. And you know, if you can survive and come back to the um, Hauptwiderstand's linea, the the like the the main resistance yeah. line. Yeah, you had like an out for the Germans. You know, you yeah. had uh, what, what the British had to tackle in the second December attack was an outpost line, uh, the Vorfeldzone. Yes. Then behind it was the Hauptwiderstand's linea, which was the main line of resistance, and that was as far as the Germans would want to fall back. And what I mean by that is the the the, the, the Vorfeldzone, these line of outposts were sacrificed, essentially. And in, in, in the German doctrine at this time, okay, and it was very difficult to implement this, I'll touch on that, but what they had, what, what was is that if the British were launching a big attack, that Warfeldselmini was supposed to fall back to the Hauptwiderstandslini yep. and join the garrison there. And as the British were traversing the ground in between the outpost zone and the Hauptwiderstandslini, the main line of resistance, the Germans would fire a bombardment, artillery bombardment there, and reduce the number of attackers. And of course, by the time they, re ideally, by the time they reached the Hauptwiderstandslinie, they would be diminished and they would lose all their offensive power and they'd be, you know, they'd, they'd be turned off. Wow. Uh, the problem was, and um, Crown Prince's chief of staff, um, General von Kohl, in, in his post-war memoir, he said the problem was is how does that Warfeldzone garrison know when it's a big attack? What if it's a raid? Right. Okay. You know, should they fall back? And that they, and they were never able to solve that. And, you know, and I touched a lot on the German defensive. In, in, we discussed that earlier, but, you know, let's focusing on the British. Uh, it's quite interesting how attacks were launched at this time. Okay. Uh, the historian Andy Simpson, who wrote a book on British Corps commanders in the First World War, he calls it the formulaic approach to operations. And this is how uh, attacks were launched in the latter half of the 30 campaign. Uh, and it's very simple how it was done. Army headquarters would draw very terse orders of what they wanted done. And there would be an objective map mm -hmm. showing, you know, what was expected to be seized, the, the current front line and what that corps with its component divisions was to seize yep. in any operation. And so this would be passed on to core. And then core would work with its component divisions. And this would be uh, in the overall plan, but certainly one of the most important things because heavy guns, for instance, were usually core assets. Okay. okay. Yep. And they would work together and they would develop the details of a plan. This is how the second of December attack was done. Certainly. Okay. Yep. And, but it was as simple as that, you know, 
Army staff would drop the orders, pass it on to Corps. Corps would work with its component divisions, and then the attack would be launched. Very simple sort of approach, and it did expedite things in a lot of ways because you know everyone knew what they had to do, and, and especially at the Corps and division level, they would hash out. And of course, the division then would work with its you know its component uh, um, infantry, bring a brigade command, uh, and uh, support units artillery, royal engineers, but it all would come together and it worked. You know, whatever the result was, it did work. It was a fit for purpose approach to operations at this point. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it's, there's a um, very, very complex and, and um, just like you're saying, the, the formulaic approach. So second December um, without, you know, again, the, Mike, the, the purpose of this podcast is to get folks, you know, want you to go out and yes. buy this book. Like, you, you will not be disappointed. But overall, how did this attack unfold? Um, and how did it play out just, just overall in a, in a broad sense? Okay. Um, I, 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 will, I will make this as concise as possible. It's quite complicated. And, and I think the most important thing to look at is the actual planning of the attack. How did that pan out? We talked about the formulaic approach. So how did it how did it work out? Well, you know, one of the problems, and it puzzles me about this, is that you're attacking from this very narrow salient, okay? And this salient is divided between two two cores. Why not before the operation turn it over to one core commander? And what you have is you have, uh, and and this is you know, generally speaking, this is against. Uh, Field service regulations at the time. Is okay? it? Yeah, you don't, this is not something you really should. It doesn't say it precisely, but it can be interpreted that way. Okay? Uh, it's quite odd that this was done. I, I don't know why Rawlinson didn't turn over the court to one of the court commanders involved. He did it after the attack. He turned it over to Hunter Weston of A4. Hunter Weston takes over. Okay? But for this attack, you have two different course planning. You know, these attacks that really, even though one is going to the northeast and the other one is attacking to the northwest, you know, uh, it's, it's the same attack. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 the divisions share a boundary. Right. So what the problem was is, is that the 8th Division of 8th Corps on the right, in their attack on, on the Venison Trench defenses and those two redoubts, yep. they were advancing uh, in a way – to where they could do a creeping barrage, where their artillery could support them. And the objectives right. are quite limited, just to remind the listeners. Uh, it's this, it's just these two redoubts and this trench in between. Just a little past that, and that's as far as they're going. It is not a great it's if, if I recall correctly, um, I can't I, I think that I think that they're advancing about 300 yards. I you're correct. Okay. I, I yeah, you're correct. 300 yards, if I recall correctly. I just you know. Can't remember all of it, <laughs> but but uh, um, they're advancing about 300 yards. It's how far their objective is. But they can have a. But the problem is on the left, the 32nd Division, under Major General uh, Cameron Dean Shute, who was a bit of a enfant terrible. Okay, he lives forever. Uh, that that yeah. poem that Lynn McDonald put in her book. <laughs> yeah, it, it's by, it, it was by a it was when he was commanding the Royal Naval Division. Um, yeah. Uh, it was um, Aubrey, not Aubrey Herbert. Oh, Alan Herbert. 
Holland and Herbert was in the Royal Naval Division, and uh, Shute had an issue with the Royal Naval Division as their uh, uh, with their with their nautical traditions that remained, even though they were a part, they were essentially they were an army division. They, right. The Admiralty right. had turned them over to the army, but he had an issue with them, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite famous. What you might not know, though, is just as an aside, uh, um, Shute became. After the war, he died in 1956. He became the chairman of the Royal Naval Division Association. Did he really? And yeah, and despite the fact that he was so unpopular when he was been, but he was very highly thought of, and he was quite ruthless. Okay, in a number of ways, which I don't have time to relate here. But sure, yeah, I recount that in the book. You may recall, uh, I know you read it. Uh, that that situation at the battle uh, in that battle on the Ankh in early 1917. Where they were going to place a battalion in a place that they knew it was vulnerable to German gunners, and yet he insisted that that's where it would go. But he was quite ruthless. And the problem that he had is, and I mentioned this earlier, is, is that his attack on the Vatkaj's Ridge and Hill 52 can be seen forming up in the daylight. Okay, Schutt was also aware of the German plan, the German, the German plan that when the British attack. That, that advanced zone would fall back onto the main line of resistance and the barrage would come down and, you know, cause severe casualties to the attacking infantry. So how to avoid that? You know, first of all, how did he know that? Well, a number of documents had been captured um, uh, in, in that period prior to the December 7th attack, the second attack. And uh, Schutt was certainly aware of this. Uh, I do go into... Uh, um, um, things that he would have learned in reading operational reports from the other divisions that were involved in that, uh, in, in the campaign prior to the attack on 2nd of December. So, for instance, uh, there's a lot of documents from the Royal Naval Division where they talked about how they were tackling German pillboxes, for instance. And so what should came to the conclusion was is that there would have to be a night attack, okay? And because his division could not be supported by a creeping barrage, Remember I, remember, I mentioned the infantry attacking from south to north yep. and artillery firing from west to east, yep. you know, and how do we traverse no man's land and, and, and also overrun that war felt zone meaning and advance to the main line of resistance without the German guns coming down and, you know, decimating our men. Right. So the plan he came up with is that for the first eight minutes of the attack, there would be no artillery barrage and the infantry would go in with the bayonet. And they would achieve surprise. And given the circumstances, it's a very good plan. But there were concerns. So General Henniker, Major General Henniker, who commanded the 8th Division, he had concerns. And he said, I'm more concerned about what unengaged German machine guns would be able to do in those heads than I am about any German counterpunch. You know, and if they do open up, within the, the period of that eight minutes. What do we do? Can we have like a uh, contingency plan? And he came up with a number of them. One was that, you know, one of his battalion commanders would fire a flare into the air. Okay. Uh, another one was that the, they have Lewis guns set up, but shit was against this. He said that it would, it would um, confuse things. Okay. And shit was a big proponent of night attacks and there's nothing wrong with night attacks. But when right. you launch a night attack, it's not in pitch blackness. There has to be some relative light. 
And so shit wanted this to go in when there was a full moon. And on the night of 2nd December, when they finally went in, it was a waning gibbous moon. So it was just a little past full, but okay. not much. But Henniker was very concerned, and he didn't get on with shoot. I'm not really certain why, but I think it was for a very brief time. Henniker, before he took over the 8th Division, commanded a brigade of the Royal Naval Division at the same time that Schutt was in temporary command of the Royal Naval Division. Uh, I think that, but they didn't get on, okay? And uh, anyway, uh, so Henniker made his concerns known to his corps commander, Hunter Weston, and certainly Jacob, who was Schutt's, uh, Major General, I'm sorry, Lieutenant General Claude Jacob, was um, Schutt's corps commander, and they overruled Henniker's concerns. Uh, and, you know, and they stuck with Schutt's plan. And it's actually not a bad plan, but now uh, um, if we go into what happens with the actual attack, and this is crucial, this is the crucial thing, is that uh, there was a concern uh, after, the, after the attack was over and it had failed, that the Germans knew that they were coming, that you know uh, they had wind of this operation that it was going to be launched and uh you know and they prepared accordingly only you know i did research in german archives and i found interrogation reports of british prisoners that were captured in the period from both divisions the eighth division and the 32nd division in the days leading up to the attack on the second december and they and and what they told the germans there was nothing that they could discern from anything that they were told that an attack was coming however they were, they did get, there was a false alarm, I believe, on the night of the 28th of November, but nothing happened. Now, one of the problems is, that, of course, the Germans are going to be very alert because the British are attacking on that traversable high ground. So, in other words, west of West Rosabita, you're not going to be able to advance in that swampy ground towards the right. But they know on the high ground of the ridge that you will have relatively good footing. So, they're going to be extra alert there because the only place that the British can attack. There you go. Yep. So what happened is, is that uh, um, just prior to the attack, there was there was a light snow. I think enough to blanket the ground, and there were concerns prior to the attack that uh, that uh, the snow, in a combination with moonlight, would make the attackers vulnerable. In other words, that they would be spotted before they stick out. Yep. And that, you know, in the forming up, so along the jumping off pit that was laid by the attacking battalions, that they, that they, uh, that they were not detected, and I, and, and I know this from from the German sources, they did not expect it. In one of the regimental histories I used, they have a first person account where a German officer on the back cottage's ridge sees the British forming up, but he thinks it's a relief. So they form up essentially without alerting the Germans. Even strangers, prior to the attack, patrols were sent out to keep German patrols from discovering the forming up. And, uh, and they captured one of them. And what was, it's, it, I can't, I, 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 I'll never know the full details, but in one of the German regimental histories, it says that they captured this patrol, this British patrol, and that important disclosures were made. But those important disclosures aren't related. It just says, but I think I could surmise what happened is in this, in, in the German regiment in question that captured these men, it seems that these Tommies must have told them that maybe a raid was coming over. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure about that, but they prepared, this regiment prepared for some kind of British attack, but they didn't alert their neighbors. Oh, wow. Okay. And I, and I, and I, and I don't know why that was. It doesn't appear to have alerted the neighboring regiments that, you know, something was afoot. And so when the British, they go in, the attack opens at 1.55 a.m. in the morning, no artillery barrage, and the British advance, and uh, they, they, they essentially, in opposite the, 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 the venison trench in the redoubts, mm-hmm. they overrun and surprise the Vorfeltz on It was a Hessian division. It was the 25th Hessian division. They overrun their outposts. Yep. And, uh, and they advance. Whereas on the left, with the 32nd division, uh, there was a, one small thing that happened that's important is there was this obscure German pillbox that the Germans abandoned and the British occupied in, I don't know, I think it was on the 22nd of November. And when the 32nd division took over, there was a boundary adjustment there with the 8th division. Yep. The battalion holding that sector where this, this pillbox was, it was along the Passchendaele, West Rosadica Road. It was a little tiny pillbox and it was on the British maps as Teal Cottage. Yes. And the Germans, uh, and the Germans abandoned it. And so a battalion uh, um, didn't take part in the, in the second December assault because it had been removed by this time. It was from another brigade of 32nd division. They had an outpost in there and uh, of, of uh, I don't know, 10 men from the second really in stealing fusiliers. And the Germans decided what was happening prior to the second December attack is both divisions were trying to narrow the distance of no man's land. And so they were sending out offensive patrols at night and driving back German outposts and occupying ground to get as close as the German outpost zone as possible. Meaning the Well, especially on the right, the, the war felt zone there, okay? But they were pushing back any, they were trying to push the Germans back and, and, and make the distance to, the, to their objectives narrower. And so the Germans launched, they were getting concerned about this, so they brought up uh, um, another regiment from another division to launch a local counterattack, and it was defeated. But interestingly enough, this would be just on the eve of the before they could do anything on the on the night of the first, second, second, on the thirtieth of November. So you only have the, the night of the thirtieth and the first of December to correct anything that could, could possibly go wrong, because it, you can't shut yourself in daytime. You know, right. uh, everything has to be done at night. So. Uh, Anyway, the Germans launched this repost, and it's beaten off. But what they didn't know is, and I, and, and I will, maybe this is a little more deep than I want, but it's an interesting story. Um, nightfall came. Nightfall of the 30th and the 1st of December. British command uh, on a divisional level, quarter level, they've written off this attack. It's beaten off, you know, no issues. So there was a, there was a company commander, the Royal Instilling Space Lyrics. His name was Kundal, Captain Kundal, MC. And, uh, Darkness fell night of the, uh, on the night of the 30th, 1st of December, 30th of November, 1st December. He got out of his shell hole position and began to, you know, check on his men. You know, it couldn't be seen easily and, you know, wandering around the darkness. And he made his way towards Teal Cottage. Now, Teal Cottage is right at the junction of the two divisions. Okay. This is why it's important. Another he issue. is the cottage. And, 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 and in the word diary, you know, they heard a shout, which was probably like, they're done. Who's there? And then a machine gun opened up and Fort Kundal was killed. And that's how they found out that this machine gun position, this pillbox, had now had two German machine guns in it. And it was right on the boundary of two attacking divisions. 
And they launched some counterattacks, but they got nowhere. And so one diary, one, one of the one memoir connected with the second December assault, the officer who wrote it, it was a posthumous memoir. He said it, it put the fox amongst the hands, essentially. That's how he described it. Yep. And, and of course, when the attack goes in, Peel Cottage has not been subdued. And what seems to have happened was, is that you had that combination of bright moonlight and snow. And once I mentioned that German officer who saw them milling about and thought there was a relief in progress, once they start moving and they're coming closer towards the German positions, apparently uh, on the back cottage's ridge, some flares went up, there was a rifle shot, and then the machine guns in Peel Cottage and along the ridge and then over uh, towards Passchendaele where the 8th Division was attacking, they all opened up simultaneously. Mm. And especially where 32nd Division was attacking, the machine guns achieved tactical dominance and inflicted heavy losses on officers and NCOs. And so where the 8th Division attacked, it's very simple. They, they, uh, uh, of course, I described this in detail, but the battalion on the right, they put out a flank guard that's successful, and they capture Southern Redoubt, but they aren't able to retain it. The second Lincoln's in the center. This is the 25th Brigade of the 8th Division. They stop and dig in in front of Venison Trench, except for one small outpost under an officer that occupies the southern end of it. And on opposite the northern redoubt, the 2nd Rifle Brigade, they only get as far as these practice trenches. You see, the Venison Trench defenses originally were practice trenches when the German front line was farther west. Yep. And when new recruits would come from Germany, it was felt at this time that they weren't trained well enough. So they that they would practice the, the trench warfare sure. uh, there, you know, tossing bombs and clearing a trench. And, else. and so these, and, and, and the Germans never thought that they would be, you know, they'd be fighting there again. There was even a large cemetery right. this period. I don't mention it in the book, but it was on along the road to Osloiker. Dang, it's vanished. You know, but they had, you know, they, they buried their dead there from, you know, uh, earlier battles, you know, first Eve and second Eve and whatever else. So, you know, the 8th Division attack breaks down. 32nd Division is much more complicated, but in a nutshell, uh, despite the German machine guns inflicting heavy casualties on the leaders, the 2nd Klinger Story for the Yorkshire Light Infantry on the right, they seize Hill 52. Uh, but they're not able to hold it, okay? Uh, and eventually, in a, in a German counterattack in the afternoon, they're driven off the hill and back down to the front line, uh, the original front line. Um, uh, the remaining battalions, uh, there is one in particular, the 11th Border Regiment. Uh, they take almost all of their objectives, but the other ones, some in some cases, they're, they're, it's it's uh, the 16th Highland Light Infantry, uh, the 11th Border Regiment, the 17th Highland Light Infantry, um, and uh, the 15th Lancashire Fusiliers. And then there's a battalion behind. That's a, it, it's interesting that they did this. This is it goes far as the Schutz command style, which is a counterattack, counterattack because they're preparing. If they seize their objectives and the Germans launch that immediate counterattack, they have a whole battalion in place that they can push the Germans back. Yep. And uh, it, it, it's, it, it's a mixed bet. The 11th Border's advanced the farthest. The 15th Lancashire, Lancashire Fusiliers on the far left take most of their objectives, but it, it, they don't really have that much to take because they're trying to capture that western end 
of the back cottages rich. Yep. Seventeen Highland Line Infantry get almost nowhere. And uh, the 16th Highland Infantry sees half of their objectives. But by the afternoon, uh, the Germans begin to launch these counterattacks. And you can try and imagine two boxers that have battered each other. Yep. From the commander of the counterattack, counterattack battalion, in his report, he thinks the German attack is very lackluster. But with all those leaders down, and Hill 52 already lost in an earlier counterattack, it's almost like the Germans just advanced and the Tommies that remain just sort of, I'm not going to say leisurely, but they just sort of just, they just kind of creep back into their, into their frontline positions again. Yep. And yep. shoot, of course, it's interesting. I can find no evidence that General Henniker or the Brigadier in question, I forget, it was um, General Clifford Coffin. He was the first British general officer in the VC in the Great War. Earlier in the 30th campaign for that, it, it was during uh, the battle of uh, the, the, the battle of uh, uh, the opening. Um, it's not Sanju. It's longer marked as one in the one. Uh, okay. Anyway, I, I digress. But in any case, um, uh, I can find no evidence that they wanted to continue this attack. Henniker was against it in his diary. He called it a um, a beastly operation. Yes, you know, classic British understatement. Okay, but shoot. Had a reputation to maintain. And there's no question about this in my mind. He told his predecessor from the first division, you know, we're going to do this. He told Rawlinson, we're going to do this. And so when the attack broke down, he's back at the canal bank in Leap, and he's trying to get the attack going again. And uh, uh, what what one of the things um, in my book that I think the readers would find interesting is is I found the original telephone telephone trans telephone telegraph transcripts. Yes where it's fly-on-the-wall stuff. And what's interesting was the ones for 8th Corps survived, but not the ones for 8th Division, but the ones for 32nd Division survived, but not the ones for 2nd Corps. And with this 32nd Division transcripts, you know, Shoot is yelling at his brigadier over the phone when he finds out that the success they thought that they achieved, because initially they thought Hill 52 was in British hands and whatever else, but the communications... They were excellent up to brigade headquarters, but from brigade to battalion, not so much. Right. And the problem was is that the communications broke down quickly, and uh, and the runners that were sent back. I mean, they literally duckboard tracks. You mentioned we were talking earlier about the thirty second division that that book about the thirty second division gunners and and mortarmen, and mm -hmm. it, one of the accounts in it talk about when they go up to the line and seeing all the dead runners, wow. German snipers picked off as they went yeah. down. So Schutt tries to get the attack going again, even to the point of where he is going to uh, um, he comes uh, as close to the, of the line as, as he can. It's actually near Gravenstock, a little to the west of Gravenstock. And he meets uh, with, with his commanders, and he's even getting ready to send another brigade to launch this attack. And so for him, you know, he was serious about doing this. The fact that he used a reinforced brigade tells him that. He was leaving nothing to chance. He was going to throw all those men at that objective, and he was going to take it no matter what. And so essentially what happens is, is by certainly by the afternoon of the 2nd of December, the attack has broken down. And by the evening, you know, Shug is waiting to get permission to continue the attack. But as far as the 8th Division goes, General Henniker, Brigadier General Coffin, 
I, it seems that once it broke down that they were done with it. Yeah. So the, so the, you know, second December, you know, the attack pretty much stalls out, you know, by the, by the third and definitely by, by the fourth of December. So what could, what could both the, the British and Germans learn from, from the, the actions on the, on the night of the, the second to the third? And did, did any of the lessons learned in this night operation, did they, did they have a role in any later battles in, in 1918? Yes. Just before I answer that, yep. what happened that the attack was discontinued is important because what happens is, is that Schrick requests from army headquarters to continue the attack. Okay. And it goes up the chain of command, and the next person that goes to is Haig's director of operations, General Davidson. And uh, General Davidson, by the time he responded, big events had occurred. Uh, um, essentially, one of the most important is, and it's, and it's not ignored by the British government or certainly GHQ, but in the East, the Bolsheviks begin negotiations with Imperial Germany at Brest-Litovsk. Right. And of course, you can see the writing on the wall that, you know, Germ Russia could leave the war and, yep. you know, the Germans would be at a real advantage in 1918. In there were also in, 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 in London, in Whitehall, there was an important meeting where the Secretary of State for War, Lord Darby, basically said to, the, you know, to the prime minister and, 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 and the ministers, you know, we need more men. For the, for the 1918 campaign, and right. they were basically told, "No, you know, whatever you have, it, 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 it's it's always been said that Lloyd George starved the army of men. It's not really true. The, Brit the British army and the war office, war office could have sent troops doing garrison duty in Britain, which they eventually did. Mm -hmm. Okay, but that's not what the war office was saying. They wanted to comb out men." From, for instance, from vital industry, shipbuilding, coal, whatever else, that was the problem. But they weren't going to—they weren't going to give Haig any more new soldiers. You can—you have soldiers in the UK, use those. That's what they were saying to him. So when Davidson responds to Rawlinson, it's very interesting because it shows you like the dynamics, how something that's necessary and important 24 hours before, 48 hours before, is now no longer the case. But uh, essentially, what what what, what Rawlinson is told is is that you know we can't justify any more loss of men in an operation like this, and you know essentially we're going to be going on the defensive. And it, just in a matter of days, Haig has a meeting with his army commanders and tells them as much. You know we are you know we need to go on the defensive. You know the Germans are going to be bringing troops from the east, and we need to prepare for that. And so that put paid to the operation from anything that 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 should want to do. And, uh, and and that was the end of it. And uh, the irony of it is, you asked about what they learned. Well, yeah. one thing, well, let's talk about the British first. With the British, they're holding the Passchendaele Salient. And of course, that was one of the concerns. We have no good observation post. Well, they hold it until the Battle of Lease opens further south in early April in, in, in 1918. And, right. and, and that's when they abandoned it. They abandoned it, the Germans. So what they decided to do was they would hold the forward area where the attack was launched from with a series of outposts, but at the core, at the base of the salient itself, that would be a defensive position that they would fall back to and then they would abandon. 
But that, but uh-huh. it, if the Germans did attack it from three sides, they let it collapse like a bat. Yeah. And they did the same with the Flakir salient, which was a consequence of the Battle of Cambrai. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, they, they held it in that same way uh, prior to Kaiserschmarrn. Okay. And uh, the other lesson that, well, there were a number of things that we can't go into detail here, but there were questions about deployment and equipment. Those are produced in an appendix at the end of the book where, you know, the battalion commanders and whoever else, they produced uh, um, um, uh, appreciations about the attack and their mm-hmm. experience and the you know, equipment and um, uh, the conditions of duckboard tracks and, you know, support and whatever else. Uh, um, uh, but you mentioned about in 1918, it's a very minor thing and it's on my to-do list. It's one of the next things I'm going to write. I contribute to a series of books that's published by the same publisher that published a moonlight massacre mm-hmm. and they're compendium volumes by, um, edited by my colleague, Spencer Jones, who's a lecturer here in Britain. And he's, he's, his, his main area of expertise is the old contemptibles in 1914. But he's, okay. a, he's a brilliant scholar. He's done a series of books and they're on the British army from 1914 and, and, and the one on 1917 will be out shortly. But the last volume for 1918, the chapter I'm going to do for that, concerns this gigantic raid that was launched at the, at, 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 on, at, against the Holtus, the German positions on the Holtus Forest. Okay. Like the 32nd Division in February 1918. It was probably one of the largest British raids ever on the Western Front. And most people have never heard of it. Oh. But the division in question was the 32nd Division, commanded by none other than... Major General Cameron shoot. And so you said, like, well, what did they learn? Well, this is quite interesting. In the operational orders, and I've only just done a little bit of research on this. So it's, I mean, I haven't really started it seriously. But one of the things that says in the operational orders is, is that they're going to attack at night under a full moon. But if there's snow on the ground, uh, the operation's going to be postponed. Uh, <laughs> all right. And, and the raid was you know, by the standards of the time was a success, you know, now, unlike the attack on 2nd December, I, I have seen some histories, newer histories. Uh, there was one on the 11th border regiment, for instance, that referred to it as a raid. And the author didn't know he, he was, uh, he, uh, he was looking at the broader subject, but you know, it, it wasn't, it was a, it was an attack to gain territory. Right. Whereas this was just gigantic raid where they went, they, they, they struck the German positions in front of the whole two spars uh, and, 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 and entered a little bit into the, you know, to the edge of the wood yep. and then they came back. It's, uh, it, I'm going to, it, it, I'm looking forward to, to writing this because I will be able to return to this particular project that took me 11 years again. I'm going to have to refer to it. So I'll see it as kind of like an expanded footnote to my expanded yes. footnote of 30 even which is what a Moonlight Massacre really is in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, oh fascinating. Awesome. Um, all right. And as far as the Germans go, I mean, really, what it, it, one of the things about this attack is, uh, it, what, what, what really was amazing to me is, in looking at German intelligence reports and these interrogation reports, or what Crown Prince Ruprecht wrote in his actual diary, not mm-hmm. the one that was published, okay? Yeah. Uh, is that how much they knew about what the British had tried to do uh, within in less than in less than eight hours. Okay. Uh, um, 
a, a lot, a number of the prisoners gave the game away. Okay. I mean, Ruprecht knew it was two brigades. He knew it was a limited objective. He knew there wasn't going to be an artillery barrage, but it did confirm to the Germans that, you know, that the campaign was certainly nearing its end. It, they officially declared it over on the 5th of December. And in their, in, in their official history, okay, to them, this was the last attack of the campaign. Whereas in the British official history from 1948, it's entirely ignored. Right. And uh, uh, it, which is curious. The uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, it did also confirm to them, you know, that their approach to the defense, you know, was the correct one, at least, you know, in repelling this attack. And the casualties amount to 1,689 men killed, wounded, and missing, which is, you know, think about, you know, I mean, I, I know it's relative and all, but think about if in any of the recent wars that we have today, you know, if you lost that many men in a day. Oh, my goodness. You know? Yeah. 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 And, 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 and this is an operation. It's just you know, by great war standards. You know, no one, most people have never heard of it. No. It's also it's also interesting, Mike, to, to compare it to like, um, gosh, I think it's the the, the Battle of, of Mons in, in uh, 1914, where where I think it was about 1600 British casualties for that day. And, and that was considered a, you know, still considered a, a pretty epic fight. And then three years later, a two division raid, get you know, 1600 casualties and, and you know. And, yeah, and, and I shrug, and, but I, I don't I don't shrug like, you know, as in it doesn't matter. I just like that's kind of the attitude like, oh, that's it's just what happens nowadays. Like it's you make a good point, because one of the reasons that the battle is forgotten has to do with the battle nomenclatures. Committee. Battle nomenclatures committee decided for for Brit for Great Britain and, you know, and dominions. They would name, you know, the campaigns and the battles and the actions of the Great War and. There was a, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with a book called British Regiments, 1914-18. It was written by, or compiled by Brigadier General E.A. James. And it's, it, it's a, a gazetteer of where they all were during the Great War. Well, he did an earlier book when I believe he was a captain. And it's, it, it's a book about what the British Battle Nomenclatures Committee came up with. And one of the points he makes in the end, it's just a tiny little book. You can actually find it online. It, there's a there's a uh, um, an, a, a free ebook. You can find oh. this. Oh, okay? okay. But he, in the introduction, it's just this little tiny booklet, and it says he says that the reader will notice that these battles, these earlier battles, like in 1914, you know, don't any don't involve the number of you know formations or units or men that latter battles do, but they seem to receive a kind of this prominence. That if they were fought later, they would not get. Right. And then he goes on to say, and I found this while I was preparing the book. So it wasn't when I was doing my thesis, but I was glad that I just by a fluke. Then he goes on to say, he said, for example, and he mentions one of the 19th, you know, the, during the retreat from Mons, he mentions one of the engagements there. He says, you know, conversely, he said, an attack by the 8th and 32nd divisions near Passchendaele. On the 2nd of December 1917, will not be found in this volume. And it was because the, the uh, Battle Nomenclatures Committee overlooked it. And I don't know why they did that. I, I don't know. Okay. However, uh, um, 
the official historian, the only reason I can think of that he overlooked it, the British official historian, the 1948 volume that covers the entire campaign. The only reason I can think he overlooked it is, is that the Second World War was over. Uh, the book was published in 1948. Yeah. Brigadier General James Edmonds, who was the head of the historic, historical section of the Committee of Imperial Defense that compiled these volumes from 1917, while the war was still going on, they'd already begun work. Okay. He was in his 80s. Right. And, in, and, and right after right after VJ Day, in the summer of in, 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 in 1945, um, had been the head of the RAF. Anyway, someone stood up in parliament. I, I, my mind just went blank. But uh, somebody stood up in parliament. He, he was the former commander of what became the RAF during the Great War. Trenchard. Okay. He stood up and they wanted a challenge to Lloyd George's perspective on 30, you know, the Battle of the Mud, and he excoriated Haig in his memoirs. And he stood up in Parliament and said, when is this volume of the official history going to come out? So there was a rush to get it out. Yep. And I think Edmund certainly knew about it. There's no question about it. That He did. I'm certain of that. But it was just, you know, I think, you know, the time was up and there wasn't a lot of interest in the war that had been fought previous to the one that just ended. And right. you have that wartime austerity which extends into the late 50s correct and you know and the government i think from what i understand they basically said to edmonds get on with it get these books finished and then we're done and so that so i think that that's how it ended up being obscured unless you look at an eighth division history or you read that obscure battalion history but it just ended up you know even in some of the best uh chronologies of the war that i've seen they don't mention it and they'll tell you about a Broadway show that opened up, you know, in New York City in August 1970. And here you have this, this really what I think is the end of the 30 campaign. Right. And it's entirely neglected. Right. Mm. Mike, thank you so much. What a, what a fascinating uh, discussion. And, and what listeners don't know is that Mike and I were actually, I think we talked for about an hour before we actually began recording. So... <laughs> This is been- get to have many co- even here. You know, I work from home. I you know I work I work for a publisher. I work for the publisher that published the Moonlight Massacre. Yep. And I don't get to have these kinds of conversations with people. But you know, Mike, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for uh, you know allowing me the opportunity to you know to talk about you know uh, something that you know that was a real labor of love for me. I, I appreciate it. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely. And again, folks, the, the name of the book is A Moonlight Massacre: The Night Operation on the Passchendaele Ridge. 2nd December, 1917. Uh, a link to the book will be made available in the episode notes. Um, of course, your local bookstore could probably use the support, so definitely buy it through them. Of course, it's always available through Amazon and, and other uh, large online retailers. Um, yeah, so uh, Mike, thank you so much for taking time um, out, of, out of what is now your afternoon to, uh, to come on the podcast. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, it's going on three o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> you were up at eight o'clock, if I recall. Yeah, that. well, I was I was up much earlier, but um, but I'm I'm an early riser anyway. So um, yeah, awesome, fascinating. And um, one last quick aside for for listeners, if you're interested in um, uh, General Shoot, uh, who there's a just a line from that poem is uh, I I refuse to command a division that leaves its excreta about. Yeah. Uh, I might remember the line. It says, for, a sh- for shit may be shot at odd corners, 
and something supplied there to suit. But a shit would be shot without mourners if somebody shot that shit shoot. I think that the, that's, <laughs> that's know, it. I, I reproduce it in the book, but I can't remember that one. Part. That's it. That's, that's it. it. I have, I believe it's my, it's called uh, uh, October Slog, and it's it's one of the last Psalm episodes. It's talking about October 1916, and I I, I read the entire poem there. So if, if folks go find that Mike, episode. And... If you give me just two more minutes, I will tell yeah. something. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You might find interesting yourself. Uh, Shoot was, was a victim of an attempted blackmail plot. Was he in really? the mid-1920s, it's a very odd story. In a nutshell, when he was commanding, when he was in command of Northern Command, mm-hmm. you know, like in the northern part of England after the war, he was one of the men slated for promotion after the war, along okay. with Henniker, too, I might add. Okay. And uh, there were these two Tommies who apparently uh, got in trouble and were court-martialed. I don't remember. And so they harbored a real animosity towards General Shute. So, you know, eventually, you know, they, you know, they left the army and they decided that uh, they were going to try and blackmail the good general. So they sent him a letter claiming to be the London Camorra, you know, like the mafia. Oh, okay? Wow. Okay. All right. And they basically said, you know, pay us. I don't know. 500 pounds, which is a lot of money in the mid-20s, okay? Yep. Uh, um, or, you know, your daughter, you had a daughter. Uh, you know, she's in danger. You know, we'll kidnap, you know. So if you want to avoid trouble with us, well, you know, they asked for the money. He went to, went to Scotland Yard and he asked for the money to be, uh, and he told them, they asked him to, take, to write a check and go to this post office box yep. where he was told to leave it. Well, of course, you know, it was pl- it was placed in the post office box and uh, Scotland Yard was waiting and they arrested him. <laughs> okay. And uh, they pressed charges and they went to prison for a time. And whatever else. But yeah, a very, uh, I, I, I don't think he was a much loved individual. And no. even in his obituary, they say, well, he was a very outspoken and, you know, and they don't use the word demanding, but, you know, he was a, and, and Henniker wasn't much different. But Henniker was Henniker didn't have the ruthlessness from right. what I've read right. of someone like Shit. But anyway, an odd story there about Shit. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. That's it's amazing. This is the kind of stuff we live for here. So <laughs> this is amazing. Mike, thank you. Thank you again so, so much. Um it was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. And and when your next work comes out, I'm happy to talk to you about that um as well. So um If you will just stay with me, I'm just going to stop recording. So um, thank you again.